Welcome to Sundays with Montrose Bible Church. We're glad you tuned in as Pastor Matt leads us in a study of God's Word. It is a tremendous blessing to be here with you. For those of you joining us for the first time, my name is Matt Harm, and I have the great privilege of pastoring here at Montrose Bible Church. Now, several weeks ago, our journey through the Gospel of Matthew began a new chapter as Jesus entered Jerusalem on the eve of the Passover celebration. He arrived to the waving of palms and the shouts of Hosanna, but quickly the narrative turned. In one episode after another, Jesus and the religious leaders had it out. With outbursts in the temple, pointed parables, and a rebuke that silenced the scribes for good. Through these various encounters, Christ has been teaching us about the dangers of hypocritical, self-serving, fraudulent faith. Pointing to the religious leaders of the day, As a prime example. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, he said. Because you travel around on sea and land to make one proselyte, and when he becomes one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as yourselves. Woe to you, blind guides, he says, who instead of leading people in the way of righteousness, Create loopholes to help other people avoid it. They had no desire to be inwardly what they spent all of this time purporting to be outwardly. And for that, the Lord promises to rain a judgment down upon them that is so severe, it is beyond their ability to comprehend it. Therefore, Christ says in Matthew chapter 23, verse 34, Behold, I'm sending you prophets and wise men and scribes. Some of them you will kill and crucify. Some of them you will scourge in your synagogues and persecute from city to city. So that upon you may fall the guilt of all the righteous blood shed on earth. From the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. Truly, I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. It appears we have now come to the final moments in this case. The evidence has been presented. The verdict is in. Now all that's left is the sentencing. What will these perpetrators and their countrymen be made to suffer as a result of their wholesale rejection of Yahweh and his Christ? Well, we're about to find out. Turn with me, if you will, to Matthew chapter 23. And follow along as we read God's word together, beginning in verse 37. Matthew chapter 23, verse 37. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, 
who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you were unwilling. Behold, your house is being left to you desolate. For I say to you from now on, you will not see me until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Jesus came out from the temple and was going away when the disciples came up to point out the temple buildings to him. And he said to them, Do you not see all these things? Truly I say to you, not one stone here will be left upon another, which will not be torn down. As he was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately, saying, Tell us, when will these things happen? And what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? And Jesus answered and said to them, See to it that no one misleads you. For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and will mislead many. You'll be hearing of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not frightened, for those things must take place, but that is not yet the end. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and in various places there will be famines and earthquakes. But all these things are merely the beginning of birth pangs. Then they will deliver you to tribulation and will kill you, and you'll be hated by all nations because of my name. At that time, many will fall away and will betray one another and hate one another. Many false prophets will arise and will mislead many. Because lawlessness is increased, most people's love will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end, he will be saved. This gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all the nations, and then the end will come. Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, which was spoken of through Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. Then those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains. Whoever is on the housetop must not go down to get the things out that are in his house. Whoever is in the field must not turn back to get his cloak. But woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days. Pray that your flight will not be in the winter or on a Sabbath. For then there will be a great tribulation, such as not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever will. Unless those days had been cut short, no life would have been saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. Then if anyone says to you, Behold, here is the Christ, or there he is, do not believe him. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and will show great signs and wonders, so as to mislead, if possible, even the elect. Behold, I have told you in advance. So if they say to you, Behold, he is in the wilderness, do not go out. Or, Behold, he is in the inner rooms, do not believe them. For just as the lightning comes from the east and flashes even to the west, so will the coming of the Son of Man be. Wherever the corpse is, there the vulture will gather. May God bless the reading of his word. As Jesus leaves the temple for the final time, one of his disciples is struck by its beauty and its grandeur. That reaction would have been quite typical, especially for those beholding this magnificent structure for the very first time. The temple, you see, was 
one of the true wonders of the ancient world. Solomon built the original in the 9th century B.C., only to have it destroyed by the Babylonians in 587. The one erected in its place began 60 years later, when the Jewish people returned from exile and reclaimed Jerusalem as their own. Always looking for a new way to make his mark, Herod the Great began to renovate and to remodel and aggrandize the temple when he came into power, a work that was very much still in progress at the time of Christ. Now I would show you renderings of the temple on the screen, but none of them could ever do it justice. You see, the building's footprint covered some 35 acres of ground. The wall surrounding it stood 150 feet in the air. Some of the stones used in construction were themselves 40 feet long, 18 feet wide, and 12 feet high, weighing more than 100 tons. As the first century historian described it, the exterior of the building wanted nothing that could astonish either mind or eye. Being covered on all sides with massive plates of gold, the sun was no sooner up than it radiated so fiery a flash that persons staring to look at it were forced to avert their eyes. To approaching strangers, it appeared from a distance like a snow-clad mountain. For all that was not overlaid with gold was of the purest white marble that man could find. No doubt, if you or I were there, we would have said the same thing that the disciples were recorded as saying in the Gospel of Mark. What wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. But knowing the incredible judgment that was about to come on the holy city, Jesus dispenses with their wonderment, saying, all these great buildings you see will be completely destroyed. That must have been a great shock. For they would not have been able to imagine the desecration of the temple, the demolition of the city, the grandiose of all structures coming down. And yet, as disturbing as this news was, the disciples seemed to accept Christ's words on this subject, asking him only about the timing of these things and the signs that must precede it. That is the conversation they begin to have with Jesus as they are sitting atop the Mount of Olives a short time later. An appropriate place to ponder such things because from that particular vantage point, they would have been overlooking the temple, able even to point to it as a reference. Jesus said, that building and those around it, they are coming down. Causing Peter and James, John and Andrew to ask, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when these things are going to be fulfilled? Now we'll consider the particulars of their question a bit more carefully next week. But for now, 
we must appreciate that their entire focus was on the judgment that Christ promised to bring upon the Jewish people and the Jerusalem temple. After all, isn't that how this conversation began? With Jesus lamenting over the spiritual condition of their holy city. Jerusalem. Jerusalem. Who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. But you were unwilling. And thus, behold, your house is being left to you desolate. Most people in modern Christendom completely ignore that context and that perspective and history when considering Christ's prophetic promise here. But from beginning to end, this dialogue is about Jerusalem and its temple. That's what the first disciples marveled at. It's what Jesus explicitly mentions. It's what the group was sitting there looking at. And it was the entire reason for their question in the first place. There is a literal fulfillment of Jesus' prophecy, which is reasonable, it is contextual, and it is observable by those whom he addressed. That in the year 70 AD, the city they were looking at and the temple they had just referenced would be burnt completely to the ground by the Roman forces. Knowing the nature and timing of this most historic event, let us see then if the signs that Christ mentions did in fact take place prior to its occurrence. In verse 4, Jesus tells them that many false teachers will come trying to mislead them. Now surely there were no shortage of pseudo-Christ or deceitful prophets looking to gain a following in the middle part of the first century. In the book of Acts, the Pharisee Gamaliel mentions a couple of them by name, Theudos and Judas of Galilee. The historian Josephus recalls a wave of false messiahs claiming to have returned. And as John looks back several years later, he remembers just how many antichrists had appeared to them, as he writes in 1 John chapter 2. Many false teachers did come between Christ's ascension and the destruction by Rome, along with the social and natural disasters that Jesus speaks of in verses 6 and 7. History tells us there was widespread famine that affected the region during the reign of Claudius, that there were earthquakes recorded in Phrygia and Pompeii, that there were rumors of conflict on a continual basis, and the eventual uprising of the Jewish zealots themselves that led to full-scale war in A.D. 66. In addition to these large-scale issues of the time, Jesus tells the disciples in verses 9 through 12 that persecution will increase before the temple is destroyed, a reality that is well-documented all throughout the New Testament Scriptures. 
the book of Acts, sees these same men taken before the Sanhedrin, beaten in a synagogue, and standing before the king. Interestingly, Jesus says that before this destruction will occur, the gospel must first be preached to all the nations. Again, we like to hit fast forward and apply that to today. But his words were to the disciples, who would soon be charged with making disciples of all nations. Or as that word is more often translated to the Gentile people. Paul believed that task had already been accomplished by the time he wrote his letter to Colossae, saying, the gospel which has come to you has gone into all the world also, constantly bearing fruit and increasing. This was their world. And the original hearers of this message would have understood it, not in terms of South Africa and China in the 21st century, but the non-Jewish people in the known world of their day. And certainly by 70 AD, the gospel had reached all of them. False teachers, natural disasters, increased persecution, gospel proclamation, all these things happened just as Christ had said, along with the abomination of desolation that he references in verse 15. Now, this language is unusual to us, but it bears some close attention. Christ says, therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation standing in the holy place, then you will know the temple is on its way down. The wording itself comes from the book of Daniel. And it means an abomination so detestable will occur that the temple will be left abandoned and soon after laid to waste. In Daniel chapter 11, verse 31, the prophet says that in conjunction with this abomination, forces will desecrate the sanctuary fortress and do away with the regular sacrifice. So what is this abomination of desolation standing where it should not stand? Well, some scholars point to the year 167 B.C. when Antiochus Epiphanes sacrificed swine on the altar, erected a pagan statue of Zeus there, and set up a brothel in the temple, prohibiting Jewish sacrifice for a time. It's possible that was the disgrace that Daniel spoke of. And yet Jesus seems to refer about something even worse. Well, what's more offensive than a pagan making a mockery of the sacred temple? What's worse? When God's people do it themselves. Turns out in AD 68, as they were fighting off the Roman invasion, Jewish zealots used the sanctuary as a military stronghold, permitting criminals to enter the Holy of Holies and committing murder where they had worshipped just a week or two before. I mean, you want to talk about an abomination. 
I scarcely can imagine an act more egregious in the eyes of God. Sacrilege. Standing where holiness is meant. I believe this act led directly to the judgment of God made manifest in the torching of the temple in 70 AD. An abomination that ended the Jewish sacrificial system for good and closed the door, in a sense, on the Jewish age, sending Christ followers into the hillsides to further their gospel work among the Gentiles as another fulfillment of Jesus' prophetic word. For when the abomination occurs, he tells his disciples that those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains. Now, of course, in ancient times, people would have come into the city during times of military conflict, believing that the walls would be the best source of their protection. And many of the Jewish people did gather into Jerusalem to their own demise. But Christ says, when you followers of mine see that kind of thing going on flee because destruction is coming soon after the number of believers fleeing Jerusalem in the aftermath of the zealots indiscretion has been well documented by the church Josephus recalls them leaving the city quote as swimmers deserting a sinking ship unquote an image that accords very well with Jesus' command to leave everything behind and go with extreme urgency. For then there will be a great tribulation such as has not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever will. Again, we quickly move this prophecy to our end of times. But Jesus is talking about the days of the temple's destruction. Contextually, there is simply no other argument to be made. And though we have little to no perspective on this, being so far removed in time and culture, we must realize the Jewish-Roman conflict was a tribulation for Israel, unlike any other in its history, with millions of Hebrews killed by crucifixion, famine, and sword. There was savagery, there was slaughter, there was rampant disease. During those years, parents resorted to the cannibalism of their own children as bodies were eaten and thrown outside the city walls. This was horror and atrocity on a scale not one of us in this room can comprehend with imagery that would have certainly turned the stomachs of those disciples listening to Jesus atop the mountain. Everything can be explained in a first century context in the lifetime of the disciples. We don't need to kick this thing down the road any further to realize that what Jesus said was true, it was understandable, and it was observable by those who originally asked their question. False teachers had come. Disasters abounded. Persecution 
increased. The gospel was preached. The abomination occurred. Believers fled. And the tribulation horrified. All of that took place by the year 70 A.D. And yet, as confidently as I can stand here and tell you all of that, there has to be more than mere historical perspective for us to gain by hearing these words of Christ. Certainly, he was speaking prophetically when he addresses these men, telling of the impending judgment on the Jewish city and the Jewish temple. But in addition to speaking prophetically, Christ is also speaking pastorally, advising his disciples how they are to live as believers in these days of struggle and strife. While warning about future destruction, Christ highlights four key principles that should guide us in these times still today. First, Jesus says, do not panic over the world's crises. Take a look at verse 6. You will be hearing of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not frightened, for those things must take place. But that is not yet the end. Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. And in various places there will be famines and earthquakes. But all these things are merely the beginning of birth pangs. Look, friends, Christ is not telling the disciples to be disinterested in the world's affairs. He's not suggesting they turn a blind eye, that they bury their heads in the sand, that they ignore the plight of the oppressed, or any such thing. It's good to be informed and concerned. But these things ought not shake the foundation of our faith. The reality is there will be war. And there will be social unrest. There will be natural disasters. Our first inclination is the world must be nearing its end. I cannot tell you how many times a well-meaning believer has said to me, well, looks like that's it. Surely the end is coming because a volcano erupted. Because a terrorist attacked. Because a moon had a certain appearance, a currency of all things was being used, or a pandemic came across the ocean. Jesus tells us right here to stop and take a breath. Do not be frightened. Do not be caught off guard. Do not be thrown from your convictions. These things must take place. But as he says at the end of verse 8, that is not yet the end. Why do we assume every time something bad happens in the world that the end is now here? Jesus says the exact opposite. That these are not signs of the end, but merely the beginning of continued sorrows here on this earth. As one theologian put it, we need to get over our narcissistic, self-centered, paranoid eschatology and trust what God is doing. Yeah? The world will always be in crisis. 
always, from this point forth and forever. And knowing this, well, it should be no surprise. Jesus says, do not panic over the world's crises. And then he says, do not back down in the face of persecution. Take a look now at verse 9. Then they will deliver you to tribulation, he tells his disciples. They'll kill you, and you'll be hated by all nations because of my name. At that time, many will fall away and will betray one another and hate one another. Many false prophets will arise and will mislead many. Because lawlessness is increased, most people's love will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end, he will be saved. This gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all the nations, and then the end will come. The warning here was for the disciples, first and foremost, who would face extreme persecution on the way to becoming the mouthpieces of the good news. They'll be rejected by the Jewish leadership. They'll be branded by their countrymen as traitors, They'll be dragged from their homes, beaten by the authorities, thrown in prison, stoned, crucified, even dipped in oil, and set ablaze. And Jesus says to these men, no matter what comes your way, your faith must continue, and the gospel must be proclaimed. Those are the two overwhelming priorities. And from the days of the disciples until now, those two priorities have not changed one bit. In the face of persecution, most professing believers today are quick to compromise, to compartmentalize, to back away, just like so many had in the middle part of the first century. Oh, and forget about proclaiming Jesus. Most of us go mute if we think that other people might make fun of us or might be offended by the things that we say. But those who are really in Christ Jesus, really and truly, embrace persecution and keep on speaking the truth. On one occasion, when the Sanhedrin had summoned them, as we're told in Acts chapter 4, they commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered and said to them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to give heed to you rather than to him? Well, you be the judge of that. Well, we cannot stop speaking about what we have seen and heard. So threaten us all you want to. Criticize us, condemn us, belittle us, and attack however you choose. We will not stop following the Lord Jesus. Yes? We will not stop preaching the truth. Yeah? Can we not muster up this same kind of resolve ourselves It's critically important, friends. Critically important. Because as Jesus makes perfectly clear in verse 13, only those 
who endure to the end will be saved. Are you there? Do not panic over the world's crisis, he would tell you. Do not back down in the face of persecution. And as we see in verse 15, do not stand by and watch utter abomination. Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, which was spoken of through Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. Then those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains. Whoever's on the housetop must not go down to get the things out that are in his house. Whoever's in the field must not turn back to get his cloak. For when you see that kind of thing happening, judgment is soon to follow. And you cannot afford to take part. Again, this is highly contextual. Talking about the destruction of the temple and the believer's response. But principally, it still carries weight today. Not because we ought to be looking for reasons to run when we have a slight disagreement, but that we must not sit idly by and allow sacrilege to take place in our holy place of worship. Because if we do, Scripture tells us we will soon come to love that thing that we once hated. We cannot flirt with these disgraces and pretend that everything is okay. We cannot be passive in our response and expect it to change. The truth is, friends, the temple was desecrated by the Jews long before it was ever destroyed by the Romans. Those who should have revered it most brought to it its greatest shame. And I fear the church today is in that very same position. Some of the things that are allowed to go on in modern so-called worship would cause Christ to vomit as the scriptures so vividly detail. Like cancer in the body that goes untreated, that kind of disease will grow, it will infect, and it will consume you. Unless, as Paul urges in 1 Timothy chapter 6, you flee from these things, you men and women of God, and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, perseverance, and gentleness. Yes? Jesus says, do not panic over the world's crises. Do not back down in the face of persecution. Do not stand by and watch utter abomination. And as we see in verse 23, do not become enamored with the spectacle of false prophets. Then if anyone says to you, behold, here is the Christ, or there he is, do not believe him. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and will show great signs and wonders so as to mislead, if possible, even the elect. Behold, I have told you in advance. So if they say to you, behold, he is in the wilderness, do not go out. Or behold, he is in the rooms, do not believe them. 
as prevalent as false teachers and deceitful prophets were in the days of John, James, and Peter, well, they are very much still with us today. One of the ways they try to convince us of their credential is through the use of incredible signs and wonders. Perhaps you've read about the cult leader in California who puts glory clouds on display for his congregation and believes that his words can cause gold dust and angel feathers to fall from on high. And his building is filled with people every single Sunday. Well, what is it that they say? If you do not stand for something, you will fall for anything. And the religious community is no exception. Every prophetic voice must be weighed and measured against the one revelation of truth that God has given, namely the contents of this book. Man, forget the spectacle and the wonder. Forget the illusions and the seances. These are false prophets who distract you with sparkly lights while they corrupt you with heretical teaching. Jesus says, don't you believe that nonsense. It will only lead you astray. Do not panic over the world's crises. Do not back down in the face of persecution. Do not stand by and watch utter abomination. Do not become enamored with the spectacle of false prophets. Regardless of where your particular eschatological views might lead, these principles ought to be your guide. And not only that, Jesus' words give us tremendous encouragement in times of trial, assuring us that those who are in Christ will persevere to the end, verse 13, and that those who are in Christ will be spared in judgment. Verse 22, even in his wrath against the godless, the faithless, the apostates, God remembers mercy. Not that we won't have to go through tribulation and persecution to a degree. Not that people won't hate us and mock us for following Jesus. They will. But that God will ultimately shorten the days of our trial. And grant salvation to his elect. What a comfort to those early disciples after hearing about the temple's destruction. What a comfort to his chosen people today that God will not pour out his wrath upon them, but will spare them on account of Christ Jesus. Let's pray together and thank him for that incredible grace. Heavenly Father, we are working through weighty subject matter. Lord, we have prophecy. We have things misunderstood. We have context that we are unfamiliar with, cultures from which we've been separated for some 2,000 years. And it can be difficult. 
Lord, I thank you for cutting through that and giving us clarity in the way we are to live in the face of difficulties, hardships, the pressing down, Lord, the persecution. You've told us how to stay true. And we know that is so incredibly important to stay true. That by the power of your Holy Spirit, you would sustain us, that we might persevere to the end and actually be saved. Thank you for that incredible work, a grace that comes to us only because of the shed blood of your Son, Jesus Christ. Thank you. May we continue to honor you and glorify you this day and the weeks to come. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen and amen. We trust you were challenged by the word of the Lord and invite you to join us again if you'd like to learn more about our ministry in Montrose or want to connect with Pastor Matt. Come worship with us at 930 every Sunday along Lake Avenue 